Hello and welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. I'm Alex. I'm Julio, and thank you for listening. If you like what you hear, head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Help promote the algorithm and spread the word. You can also find us on SoundCloud to subscribe and review. And don't forget to visit our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Follow us on Twitter at Contrarian Prime. And to like us on Facebook, visit facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you have the willpower to keep up with our pretentious ramblings, you can follow us individually at Contrarian Alex for myself and at Ovnio for Julio. That's O-V-N-I-O. Now, time for the podcast. All right, and we are recording for Contrarians Corner for Adventureland. Hello, and welcome back to the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. My name is Alex, joined as always by my cohort, Julio. Julio, how are you doing on this Wednesday evening? Um, I'm doing all right. I have gotten past the initial disappointment that Adventureland was not a prequel to Zombieland. After that, it was kind of smooth sailing. Even oh, that's right. Jesse Eisenberg is in Zombieland. I was... <laughs> I always forget that's a movie that exists. I just need to get that joke out of the way because <laughs> it's just so easy. Thank you for doing that up front. Uh, we are here for episode number 96. No, no, no. 97. 97. Good Lord. 97 on the trek to 100. We're here to visit the 2009 coming of age tale starring Jesse Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart. And also lurking in the background for the duration of this film is... The Green Lantern himself, Ryan Reynolds. And a bunch of other well-known comedy actors. Yes. But he's the one that uh, lurking would be the proper term to describe his character. Extremely appropriate. Adventureland. 88% on Rotten Tomatoes. So we are here today to discuss the negative merit in it. Negative <laughs> oh. merit. That's like a... That doesn't even make sense. It's an oxymoron. Yeah. It's like saying... American bratwurst. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Uh, yes, we are the Contrarians. This podcast is where we rage against the Rotten Tomatoes machine, as we like to say. Uh, thus meaning, if it is a fresh movie on Rotten Tomatoes, we make a case for why it shouldn't be. Vice versa, if it's a rotten, nasty green splotch, we'll accent the positives in it. If you've listened to our podcast before, you already know this deal, but we appreciate you listening to it once more. If it's your first time listening to the podcast, we appreciate the listen. And uh, again, to reiterate, since this is going to be a fresh movie, Adventureland at 88%, we're here today to tear it down. Explain why Jesse Eisenberg is kind of a little bitch. Basically. <laughs> now, if you want to know how we actually feel, then you stick around for the second half of the show. That's called Contrarian's Corner. And uh, I think you're ready now. <laughs> <laughs> you're up to speed. Uh, directed by Greg Matola, I believe this was his follow-up to Superbad. If not, it was just several movies removed from it, uh, and that was part of the inherent, or not inherent, but initial issue with this movie was it was marketed as the next Superbad. I'm looking at the poster right now, and it says the biggest font uh, text on it, aside from the title Adventureland, is from the director of Superbad. The problem was that it was it gave you the idea that this was the beginning of the, the Greg Mottola cinematic universe. <laughs> And instead, it's, it's nothing of the like. None it's, of the characters, you know, there's no post credit scene. <laughs> there's no McLovin in the background. 
<laughs> yeah, it doesn't show up, just interspersed. So being that it's 88% fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, that means a hell of a lot of people liked it. Julio, what were the critics saying about this? So we have a lot of uh, Red Tomatoes. I handpicked a few with my own hands and my smartphone. From the Run Tomatoes website, start with David Edwards from the Daily Mirror UK, who says Superbad director Greg Motola casts an affectionate eye over the 1980s with a gentle but effective comedy. He kind of goes to that very familiar, well-trod road of uh, the 80s. Yes. That well that never never runs dry. No, it, it's it's definitely heavily reliant on this. Would Superbad said No, Superbad's the 90s. Never mind. No. No. It was Adventureland. No, uh, Superbad wasn't the 90s. It was present day for when it came out, so 2007. It just felt so 90s. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> uh, and no, yes, this was his follow-up. It's Adventureland, Take Me Home Tonight, American Psycho. The 80s trilogy that <laughs> everybody <laughs> should watch. Difference was he wrote Adventureland. He did not write Superbad. Or American Psycho. No. <laughs> um, Elliot Noble from Sky Cinema says, Wisely, Motola doesn't try to reinvent the comedy wheel. He's simply taken the plot-free route of Superbad, made the like-for-like swap of Jesse Eisenberg for Michael Cera, upscaled the romance, and downsized the slapstick. I don't know if that's, that's a compliment to Michael Cera or an insult to Jesse Eisenberg or vice versa. I don't know. Yeah, I don't really know what he was hoping to accomplish with that breakdown either. It's just like... <laughs> Okay, that doesn't tell me anything of how the movie is. Uh, and finally, you want, you want an actual take on the quality of the movie? Here's Rob Humanick from Suit101.com. And he says, The serving of Citizen Kane status in its insight, emotional depth, and yes, entertainment. Wow. The Citizen Kane of 80s amusement park movies. You heard it here first. That's just asking to have your ass kicked. Like, why would you just come out the gate comparing it to Citizen Kane? My guess is... Uh, the problem with shit like that, too, if, if people read that, they're immediately going to hate the movie just because right. someone compared it to Citizen Kane. That's that's a surefire way of alienating part of the audience. Why would you do that to yourself? Why would you compare it to, you know, Citizen Kane? <laughs> yeah. Hell? At least this was not the, the PR people behind Adventureland. This was just some guy that had a blog and got really excited. That's going to be the kiss of death for years with superhero movies when someone's like, the Dark Knight for a new generation. Exactly, it's yeah. like, go fuck yourself. Nope, automatically turned off. Yeah. I don't care. <laughs> All right. Adventureland focuses on our central character, Jesse Eisenberg, playing the role of James Brennan. Who, the year is 1987, year of my birth. He has graduated college and he plans to go on summer vacation to Europe before he starts back up uh, school at Columbia in the fall. I never was one of the people that had like this idealistic plan of after I graduated college. It's probably why I'm in the situation I'm in right now, but. I don't know, Alex. I've. Uh, this is definitely white people shit. A hundred percent. But also, and if we may dip into somewhat real talk, because this was it was impossible not to think about it as we were watching the movie, regardless of me taking notes for Contrarian's Corner or just thinking real thoughts for real talk. My wife was reading me this article last night about just basically. It, it was kind of a recap of stuff I already knew, but it was kind of nice to see it all summarized in one spot, which was basically, you know, how did millennials get to the point where they are right now? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's like the world changed so much from, you know, from what they were being promised or what they, they were taught that the world was going to give them. And then so they were taught like to follow this path. But then by the time that they were halfway through the path or some of them had already finished, the world had changed so much that it was the reward was not there anymore. 
And so then you had to adjust, but they, because of that very specific path that they'd followed, they didn't have, a lot of them didn't have the, the capability to adapt. And so, you know, it's like, oh, I'm at this place where I just finished my education and I'm not getting the job that I studied for. So what do I do? Well, all I know is to study more and study harder. So I get on, get more student debt and keep going, <laughs> you know, hoping that that will get me the job. That, it's a vicious uh, cycle. Right. And it's, it's a lot more complex than that. But it, really, I was thinking of Jesse Eisenberg at the beginning of this movie with his fucking entitlement. <laughs> Even it's like I'm gonna go to Europe because I just graduated, and and then when with I come a back comparative to literature degree, it, it's like I, you know, I, I I guess I am somewhat a millennial. I think we established that a while ago. Just kind of like I'm like right on the border mm-hmm. between my my Peruvian years and the fact that I'm like older. It's just it almost makes me not qualify. But I think like I have a foot on each side, like millennials and whatever. God knows I'm not a boomer, but you know whatever it is that's not a millennial. And I just wanted to be one of those guys that grabs him by the neck and was like, do something productive with your life and stop thinking about what what the world owes you. Yeah. You know, he seems so just shocked that his parents won't pay for his European vacation. Well, they told him they were going to, but then his dad got reassigned work and they can't afford it anymore. Right. Shit happens. But his mom spends like five minutes trying to get this idea, this very simple idea through his head, which is like, we don't have the money that we did before. <laughs> How hard to understand is that? Yeah, he just keeps talking like he's not, it's not registering with him at all. Right. He's like, so what you're saying is <laughs> we're doing it later, but you're still paying rent for when I go to New York. Uh, yeah. She says he's going to have to find a part-time job or he's going to have to figure out a way to, he's not going to be able to go to Europe for the summer. He's got to figure out a way to make money for himself and contribute. Yeah, so we have to watch the scene that I guess we're supposed to be sorry for him when all his other rich friends are going on the Europe trip. Mm. And he's like, oh, I have to stay here. And his buddy, how can you feel bad for him? And his buddy's like, don't worry about it, man. When I come back from Europe, I'll, I'll cover your your part of the rent yeah. until, until you, you get your feet. More white yourself. people shit. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I got it covered, man. <laughs> but then, yeah, his uh, rich white friend leaves him with a bushel of joints. Just so impractical. This dude just rolled like 50 joints for him. Why didn't you just give him a bag of weed? You know, I had to ask you when we're uh, maybe 10 minutes into the movie. I was like, have they said when this is set? Because I thought it was the 80s. It felt very 80s. There was a title card at the very beginning. I didn't see any cocaine. (laughs) And so all they were doing in this movie was smoking weed. No Dan Fogler. No Dan Fogler. No hardcore drug usage. I mean, the songs were like the only thing that said really 80s. Not even the, the hairstyle. Or it was the, in Pittsburgh. I don't know if Coke had really ever taken it never off made in it Pittsburgh. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe in Philly, but I don't know. Uh, but yeah, it, James gets a job with a child. A childhood friend hooks him up with a job, I should say, at Adventureland, which is a local amusement park in Pittsburgh. Uh, Frigo, his degenerate friend from childhood. Really, probably the best thing about this movie is that Frigo is played by the future nice guy Johnny. And if you listen to our fairly recent bonus episode about the weirdest movies we own, you know that I own Nice Guy Johnny, written and directed by Edward Burns. (laughs) Frigo is the main character there. But this is just a tried and true example where we're talking about when you have absolutely no backup plan of what happens. You just ended up, you end up operating fixed games at a shitty failing amusement park. Uh, the amusement park is run by the couple of Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig, who I think both um, 
are slumming it here. Spiritually and literally on set for about 12 hours. <laughs> uh, Maybe longer because there are night and day shots, but... It, it's all like one single... You know, they, they started at night and they shot all the way till sunrise. <laughs> and then they were they were good to go. They took off. They went their separate ways. Bill Hader, I think his best, contri- best contribution to this movie is his mustache. It's absolutely flawless. Yes, but it also kind of overshadows him. There's really, I feel bad. It does distract from his face. Yeah, well, this is this is Bill Hader, sort of fresh off Superbad, mm-hmm. and Superbad, you can have your issues with Superbad, but Bill Hader is usually not one of them. He's he's one of the highlights in that movie, and to go from Superbad to this role that is really it's nothing. It, the most memorable thing about it is the mustache, and mm-hmm. then he is barely in the movie, and when he's in the movie, his jokes are hit or miss. Why Why did you do this to this actor that did so much for you in your previous movie, Greg Matola? And Kristen Wiig has really nothing much to speak of here. Yeah, the entire cast, really, because, you know, you have, okay, so you have Kristen Wiig, you have uh, Bill Hader, uh, one of the the main workers, co-workers of uh, Jesse Eisenberg, turns out to be uh, Martin Starr. Joel. Uh, Joel. You know, obviously you have Kristen Stewart as the, as the love interest later on, and then you have Ryan Reynolds, and so... These are all actors that we've come to know later on, but this feels almost like they're. This is before they found their groove. This is just them kind of sticking to their persona. So they're all playing just very specific types. So Kristen Wiig, for example, she's just playing what you think of as a Kristen Wiig character, but without any of the the charm. You know, it's just like this is Kristen Wiig. That's it. You know that we love her here in this podcast. Oh, yeah. We we awarded her. At least one Embry <laughs> that I can think of. But that's because you can see her evolution from this type of role to a role that's more complex, like the stuff that she does now. So I feel that way about Bill Hader. I feel that way about Kristen Wiig. I feel that way about Martin Starr. In this movie, they're just kind of one-dimensional, stereotypical characters they were supposed to play at that time. And I guess the movie suffers because I know they can do so much more. Yeah, despite having a, a full staff here at the Adventureland, we really only there's four characters I would say that we really get to know. Uh, Kristen Stewart, as previously mentioned, the love interest in this, uh, plays M Emily, Martin Starr, Joel, the grizzled vet of Adventureland, who shows uh, James the ropes of everything going on. The I love on Wikipedia she's referred to as the alluring Lisa P, played by Margarita. Uh, Lieva, and anyone who's ever worked a job like this knows there's a everyone has a Lisa P. Everyone knows that one unbelievably hot girl that worked there that was the apple of everyone's eye. Every place has a Lisa P. I don't think it limits itself to jobs. I think that every every class has a Lisa P. Every workplace, yeah, has a Lisa P. Every mall, <laughs> which would have been the the. The scene at the time. And then, of course, the the Kraken, the squid, the evil man, Ryan Reynolds, who plays Connell, who's the park maintenance man. And just right from the first shot of him, just looking greasy and evil is all hell. This is, I would say, the equivalent of uh, uh, Jason Statham in London, right? This is Ryan Reynolds trying to, trying to give it a shot at, at being... Reynolds' hair right here is a little bit more passable than... <laughs> Statham. Okay, hair notwithstanding. Okay. I think that Reynolds was going for for a serious role. He wanted to kind of redefine where his career was going. And the similarity with, with Statham's case is that it didn't quite work. 
you know, Statham got stuck in action movies after uh, London and uh, and Reynolds kind of went back to silly comedies and Green Lantern. Um, but the degree of success of the performance, I don't think is similar because I don't think that Ryan Reynolds really hits the lows that he needs uh, to make this a memorable villain because he's the only villain in the in the movie. Yeah, aside from lack of money, he's the only negative force <laughs> in the movie. And maybe Jesse, Jesse Eisenberg's self Not even lack of money. I'm trying to think of the inevitability of living. <laughs> yes. Other than reality, uh, Ryan Reynolds is the, the villain. So, M, Kristen Stewart. It's Kristen Stewart. It, that's what I'm telling you, man. It's just... What do you think of? She'll look down at the ground. She'll bite her bottom lip. She'll tussle her hair. Yeah, she'll kind of like pause mid sentence. She'll shake her head out. I, I, I don't know. She, she'll do a lot of that, stuttering and stammering. In the, but see, here's the thing. This, that's fine, you know, because that's how I think most actors come in with a persona in the, in, into their careers, and then they either just make a career out of playing that that persona out throughout many movies or branch out and, and do other stuff, right? And I think most of the people in this movie have actually branched out and they are no longer like these very specific personas, uh, Kristen Stewart included. But in this movie, she's just the, the prototypical Kristen Stewart character. Paint by numbers. And this was at the beginning of the Twilight phenomenon. I don't remember how long those movies went. Aren't so there she, like seven of them? <laughs> they, they keep breaking them into more and more parts. So the first Twilight was one, and then one movie, and then the second Twilight was like three movies. <laughs> I'm kidding. No, I don't I, know. I, 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 well, I'm, we have still working for a lot of those. I remember they, they drew. They were confirmed draw. I think they're like five total. But that's the thing. I mean, there were there were draws, so you could see how. Isn't it hilarious that like Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson are like actually talented and then what was his name jacob taylor lauder yeah taylor lautner whatever he's part of the adam sandler uh (laughs) troop i mean i I just but he probably made a zillion dollars off of the twilight franchise he doesn't need to make quality pictures alex no surprised he's not in the mcu in that case (sighs) party at emily's house as with any as with any new work environment you've you buddy up quickly with the with people, and I guess their age, they've probably been around like 21, 22, 23. Yeah, one of the And so you're still in prime party age. So, of course, naturally, there's going to be a party at someone's house. Uh, they're all kind of losers, though, because they all live with their parents. There's uh, but They're rich losers, except for Martin Starr. Martin Starr is actually poor. Yes. He says it. We see it later on. But yeah, I guess it's right. Their parents are all mostly rich, but... It, Right, it Kristen begs the Stewart. question what they're doing. Yeah. It, no, it, no, 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 because Kristen Stewart's at home from college. Never mind. She's not a loser. Oh, right. That's right. That's Ryan right. Reynolds is a loser. He has <laughs> a house with his wife, but like a summer residence in his mom's basement. So party at Emily's house. Uh, it's fucking. No cocaine. Again. 20s party. A lot of drinking. Weed. Uh, M and Jim go for a swim together. He poorly plans out this. <laughs> he jumps in the pool in his tidy whities and I mean it's Kristen Stewart. It's an attractive woman in there with him, so naturally. Did this feel forced to you as far as like from a comedic standpoint that we gotta have I, I wrote the horny boy no- with his boner? My note says boner joke. Yeah. It just because it takes up, you out of the moment. Well, especially because up till then it feels like Motola's been trying so hard to stay away from Superbad. 
if anything, he's been to prove that this is something else. He's he's got other tricks up his sleeve. He's just about the emotion and the nostalgia and the just the, a different sensibility. And now suddenly we get hit with a boner joke, and it's like, oh, it's super bad again. <laughs> just he ran out of tricks. He had to like <laughs> go back to the old bag. Uh, but also, there's this really weird sort of uh, running subplot about the fact that Jesse Eisenberg is a virgin that. Yeah. doesn't really jibe with the rest of the movie. The rest of the movie is trying to be more sensitive about everything. And He's also an idiot and just tells everyone that will listen that he's a virgin. Right, but there is no... It's only brought up for comedic Which purposes. Which is fine, but not when you're like actively trying to get laid. Well, but, but, but that's the thing. This doesn't feel like the movie where if you're bringing up your virginity, it has to do with... Uh, it's going to be for a punchline. You know, but it never gets explored beyond it being a punchline. And... The climax of the movie, I guess. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, he he quickly become has the reputation of he's a virgin, but he also has a lot of weed. So yeah, I I don't understand the appeal of of Jesse Eisenberg in this movie. Which again, it just goes to show to me that these characters don't know what a lot of weed actually looks like. <laughs> How sheltered are they? That you know they they're impressed by by Eisenberg's stash. Of weed, and they're impressed by these by Eisenberg as a person. <laughs> what a badass, <laughs> right? Yeah, he's got these toothpick thin J's that he's just handing out, and everyone's getting like psyched on him, <laughs> like he's fucking Danny Zuko or something. After the party concludes, we get uh, a reveal pretty quick into the movie, so much so that you commented on it was much quicker than you remembered. As M's phone rings, and she's like, "Yeah, come on over," and it's revealed that Ryan Reynolds Connell is the bad guy of this movie, <laughs> right? I guess at this point, we don't know how bad. We don't. I mean, he just seems... But he does say, no use in wasting time, and starts undressing her before it cuts away. Yeah, but at this point, we don't really know all the context, because for all we know, that's that's just that's just her... That's how that's, they do it. That's her thing. Yeah. You know? They take turns. When she goes over to his mom's place, she's like, no use of wasting time, <laughs> but when he comes over, he gets to say it. I don't think we should waste time. <laughs> so... This is probably the only couple in the movie that I buy. Because they're both so just emotionally damaged. And so attractive. But oh, also yeah. just the way they complement each other, I think it matches. You know, they're 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 fucked up in compatible ways. I don't buy Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart. I don't buy Eisenberg and Lisa P. I don't buy Martin Starr and the redhead. The anti-Semitic redhead, Sue. apparently. <laughs> yeah. They all seem just like relationships forced because the, the screenplay needed them mm-hmm. to happen. But Ryan Reynolds and Kristen Stewart, I buy it before they even say a word. And it might be just that that elusive quality called chemistry. <laughs> the, the moment you see Ryan Reynolds like walk into the house, you're like, oh, it's going down. A star has arrived. So yeah, I guess we don't know the extent of his dirt bagness yet, but it's... Uh, we, we know he's married. It's right? begun, yeah. Uh, summer continues. Jim's parents want him to stay closer to home. We notice that every shot of Jim's dad, Mr. Brennan, he has a drink of some sort in his hand. We also notice, I guess on second watch, you notice the dead eyes. Yes. It's fairly subtle. The first shot of him with a drink is very blatant, but after that, it's fairly subtle. I, I honestly... I didn't Having watched Joker was. last night, I, I pine for a world of subtlety. Subtlety? Yeah. You were not trying to figure out, like, which Scorsese movie this shot was coming from in, in Adventureland? Well, the problem with this is it didn't hold my hand the entire time, so I, I didn't know what was going on. He could have dreamed all these interactions with people. <laughs> there was no 
big dramatic shot of Jesse Eisenberg going down the stairs <laughs> when when he was about to go on a date with Lisa P. Jesus. The less said about that movie, the better. There's a budding romance in the air. It's palpable between Jim and M. And Connell, as he does, is observing this from afar. He's just there to kind of fix the machines. He doesn't really interact with customers, things of that nature. It's basically what I did at Cinemark for five years, <laughs> working on projectors. Uh, just, just observing, observing everyone from afar. Every now and then swooping down. And just <laughs> Much like I did. He Connell swoops down and attempts. He's, he sees what's going on. He's already attempting to sabotage things. Just kind of asking them both conflicting questions. He sees them out at the bar one night. He shows up at the bar with his wife. Yeah. Um, and gets pissed at Kristen Stewart about it. Because he's like, you know, this is my place. But off of that, asking them different questions, telling... Just being a fucking gossip and a chit chat. We know we're starting to see the the cracks on his facade break. He's not as cool as he thinks he is. No, God no. Well, he's not as cool as anybody in the park thinks he is. That's that's part of the problem, right? That everybody in the park sells him as this legend of coolness. The the urban legend in the area is that he once jammed with Lou Reed. It's like, do they even know who Lou Reed is? Like with Ryan Reynolds here, you can just see that I could you tell right away. Oh no, he's just some delusional old man that made this shit up. But yeah, he's starting to poke holes in everything that he can, including Kristen Stewart. Oh, party scene continues. The group goes out after work. There's some local bar called Razzmatazz that they like to frequent. Uh, the significance of this going out was. Um, this is what you made allusion to. Martin Starr way out kicks his coverage and makes out with that really hot redhead. But again, this movie is not particularly plot heavy to speak of. It's just a lot of, if you've ever had a summer job at a place where people just like to party. Yeah. I mean, it's. And it's, everyone's horny. It's Greg Motola's almost famous. The problem is that. He is no Cameron Crowe. Well, yeah. I mean, you know, when Cameron Crowe makes... And we had our issues with Almost Famous. But when Cameron Crowe makes a movie about his early years, it's about going on tour with a rock band. Mm -hmm. And when Greg Motola makes a movie about his early years, it's about working a summer job at an amusement park. <laughs> so one thing is more interesting than the other. You can tell. <laughs> so there's there's a lot of just nothing happening. I think that if you're Greg Motola and you're watching this, you're like, man, that's my life on the screen and it's awesome. It's so exciting. I can connect with everything. When I'm watching it, I have no connection with this mm -hmm. because the Jesse Eisenberg character has nothing going for him. I'm not impressed by his weed. I'm not impressed by his How the fuck humor. was he able to score Lisa P.? Dude, I, I don't buy the relationships here. This movie doesn't just want me to buy <laughs> This is it. ridiculous. Like, the only thing more egregious than Jesse Eisenberg scoring Kristen Stewart in this Lisa P character is Michael Sarah scoring Kat Dennings in <laughs> Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. And even then, I think they at least had music in common. It, it all happens in one night, right? And, and, and he, it, Michael Sarah also has, like, ex-girlfriend that movie super hot, too. I'm trying to remember who she is, but God... There's something I like I act like I want this previous generation of movies to right now, but then I remember we had sex symbols, Michael Sarah and Jesse Eisenberg. Which according to that guy, they're interchangeable. This is gonna bother me. So continue on your rant. I'm gonna look up who the hot chick that Michael Sarah was supposedly snogging in Nick and Nora was. Well, my rant as it were, is just that this is just Greg Matola's uh home movie. I understand it, and we've seen it happen again and again. He hits it big with Superbad, mm -hmm. so now he can do whatever he wants. And so he chooses to tell a very personal story that doesn't resonate with anyone because nobody cares. You know, it's like, that's cool, man. I, I remember 
I had a, a I have an uncle that had this very very uh, insightful revealing statement once because he was telling me about this this girl that that he was emailing back and forth with and he was like one day I'm, I'm thinking about maybe just publishing a book that's a collection of our emails and All then right. he said but then again maybe I shouldn't because of course everybody thinks that their life story is the most exciting thing in the world <laughs> and it really isn't you know and it, this is it. This is like Greg Motola publishing his book of like emails that nobody gives a shit about. Yeah, it's not like Man on Wire where it's <laughs> like, oh, that's exciting shit. Right. It, especially because the Jesse Eisenberg character only it's like works. Man on Lawn. <laughs> man on Adventureland. <laughs> uh, the Jesse Eisenberg character only works if you really feel that that that's you. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that happens, that would happen very often. I think that's such a specific character. You know, there are characters that are made to be universal. Mm-hmm. You know, I can relate to to somebody who's like a little bit charismatic, not because I think of myself as charismatic, but because I want to be charismatic. Like uh, Fassbender and Shame. Exactly. I want to fuck like Fassbender and Shame. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> yeah. But but Jesse Eisenberg here, he's just so off-putting the entire time. And maybe, maybe a generational gap thing happening you know i just don't have the patience for the millennials or at least that type of millennials so of course i see him and everything that somebody would would react positively to is just pushing me away i have no sympathy for his dilemmas i have a hard time finding him charming at all so of course i don't understand why people are even surrounding him it's why the role of zuckerberg was like custom made for him exactly this is and i know this is just also part of just the bias i bring it to me it's just he's not even acting he's just being uh jesse eisenberg yeah you know it's like when he does try to act we all saw dawn of justice i was about to say that's he's no lex Luthor here he's not he's not stretching out his muscles i can't even i just can't with that as Jim Barnett would say, I just can't. Uh, Alexis Dezena was the actress that <laughs> fucking Michael Sarah also had scored in Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, and she's very attractive. So I think an issue I'm running into here with this movie is typically here we go beat for beat on the plot, and like I said, there's no really plot to speak to, so I find myself kind of grasping at straws with some of this, but... But I bet you Greg Motola could tell you beat by beat what happened that summer. Oh, absolutely. He would be like, yeah, and this was June 22nd. I touch her boob. <laughs> Sue and Joel, Martin Starr, God bless him, still in the game. He was young in Freaks and Geeks, and then he's stayed perennially 19 since then. <laughs> With varying degrees of facial hair. Yes. And like the glasses, depending on the magnification in them. That's that's the indicator of how much of a geek he is. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, he, God bless him. I mean, I think we've all been there at one point or another, ends up making out with some chick that's way hotter than him. So this is this is kind of like a throwaway thing that happens while... Uh, it doesn't pay off. Right. That's the thing. that The, the whole Martin starts a plot. He, he actually gets a story of his own halfway through the movie, which I don't understand what the point of it was. Because it's one thing when you have him... Like on his own as background amusement while Jesse Eisenberg's story is happening, mm-hmm. but but this turns into like a thing because at first I thought we were just gonna see her kind of not walk of shame him, but you know she she just regrets what yeah. happened. But no, it turns out into a bigger thing. She's Catholic. He's Jewish. Her parents don't want her dating him. It's like what? Where did the movie go? Yeah, it, it definitely it took a hard left. Yeah, <laughs> and it was like oh okay. And then she tells Kristen Stewart, and then Kristen Stewart calls her an anti-Semitic piece of shit and says, you're not my friend. And then the shot just lingers on Sue 
And then we just move on with the movie. She never, she's never seen again. It never circles back. But uh, Playboy himself, Jim, is able to go on a date with Lisa P. Uh, after she, in a scene, it seems like she's like jokingly asking him out just to get some dude to stop bothering her. But they really end up going out. She's really hot, but also really dumb. And I think he kind of sees through that. But like men... She's still really hot, so he wants to make out with her at the end of the night. Right. He's also just going off the advice of Ryan Reynolds. Yes, who was sabotaging this and said, you'd be a fucking idiot not to go out with Lisa P. Also mentions that she's a virgin. And once again, just bringing up the the whole sexual history, but not for comedic reasons. Massive (laughs) sociopath. Yeah, it's really weird. When they bring it up on... on, uh, Eisenberg's side is is a joke. Mm -hmm. When they bring it up on... uh, Lisa P's side is for some sort of like creepy, weird, dramatic uh, turn. And to me, like, why does Ryan Reynolds know that? <laughs> Later down the line, you one could deduce that she shut him down. But <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg, when he hears she's a virgin, really, in this day and age. <laughs> they go out. They make out at the end of the night. Um, he grabs her boob. He does grab her boob. This begins adding to Jim's ego significantly. He starts to think that he's uh, the bee's knees. With the moderate amount of weed that he had, Kristen Stewart ended up making them pot cookies. And we get just kind of a senseless transition scene of them getting ripped off of pot cookies and playing bumper cars. There's just stuff happening. (laughs) No, No real plot. I have a note here that says Bill Hader is an unstable boss. We get just these random inserts, these like cold transitions of him just yelling at patrons at the amusement park to throw away shit. Or he leads the horse races at one point and just screaming at the top of his lungs. It almost feels like he's trying to make it. He's trying so hard to make this super bad. You know, because his character in Superbad, he's just every time you saw Bill Hader, he was funny. He was stealing uh, the spotlight in here. Even with less screen time, it's like he's trying so hard to forget, forget all this stupid uh, young adult drama that you've been following. It's like when I'm here, it's a comedy. Look at my mustache. Kristen Wiig has maybe a half dozen lines in this movie. She mumbles half of them. Yeah. She was tired. Had to get a red eye. Uh, Joel quits. Why does Joel quit? This is really weird. And I, I do wonder now, now that we're talking about it, mm-hmm. I, I do wonder if there's just a whole entire 30 minutes of Joel, like Martin Starr's plot that had a lot more. Tales from the Black Freighter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's just animated. It's just uh, the criterion of Adventureland has the, the 30 minute animated Martin Starr thing where uh, it, it seemed to me that he develops a crush on Kristen Stewart. Okay. This is never explored, but the last time we see him... We're all for fan theories. Well, so the last time we see him in Adventureland, before he quits, he sees Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart kind of like walk off into the distance. Obviously, they're going to make out. This is after he's uh, stood up for her. They get in, He gets into a fight with some dude. That's right. You know, so he's he's everybody's hero. and But Martin Starr knows that he's gone out on a date with Lisa P. He knows he's he's playing both sides. And so you can see some bitterness okay. as they walk away. And then the next thing you know, he's quit. And this is after Kristen Stewart defended him for the whole anti-Semitic thing. Yeah, with so, Sue. Yeah. So, I mean, it seems like I have to do a lot of work to connect these dots, which I shouldn't. It's like Motola either did it and then cut it out or never even bothered. If this is Joker, they would have shown that all to you. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> well, it, it, would, it would have shown like 
quick cuts to what uh, yes to what he was thinking. It would have made sure to hold your hand through the whole thing. But yeah, he just quits and then goes back home, and Jim goes to see him, and Martin Starr kind of shames him about the whole situation. Yeah, he's like, "You have this perfect girl." So Jim goes back to the. <laughs> yeah. She runs her fingers through her hair like 900 times a day. What are you doing? Uh, he goes back to the park to come clean with her, explains, you know, I went on a date with Lisa P. And God, just like a f- dumbass white boy just keeps admitting more and more. He's like, I kissed her. I touched her boob a little bit. It's just like people never learn, man. Like Lionel Hutz said, there's the truth and the truth. Well, the thing is, Kristen Stewart, you know, she doesn't react badly in the moment, I mean, directly to him, yeah. right? She just kind of goes like, oh, that's fine. That's fine, man. <laughs> Blood trickling out of her nose. She's <laughs> like, you don't owe me anything, which prompts his really dorky line, but I want to owe you stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but and, of course, this like completely crushes her inside. Right, right. But, the, but what I mean is, it, they're just so, I, I can't buy into their relationship, you know, because even at the moment where they should be just airing their shit out, they just don't. You know, they have, they have nothing to lose. It's like, yeah, you don't owe me anything, so let me just tell you how I feel. Instead, she just goes and hooks up with Ryan Re- Well, she doesn't hook up with Ryan Reynolds. He goes to Ryan Reynolds. Yeah, she goes there to try to shut it all down. He naturally tries to hook up with her. She goes really, to what his- we should say is she goes to her Oscar clip. <laughs> she goes to his house and says, I can't fucking do this anymore. And he's like, what the fuck are you doing here? My wife's going to see you. Uh, Meet me at my mom's. Yeah. <laughs> Go to my mom's. I'll think of an excuse and I'll meet you over there. And so he goes, oh, he's so creepy too. He's like got like two drinks and he's like, hey. It's like uh, Chevy Chase and uh, Caddyshack when he spikes the drink. Oh, got a live one here. <laughs> Problem with this is while this is all going on, Jim finds out through the grapevine at the park that they had been uh, caught. The biggest surprise in this movie is probably that Frigo, nice guy Johnny, actually had a, a a purpose beyond punching Jesse Eisenberg in the balls. To, to expose that M and Connell had been caught previously uh, engaging in intercourse in the parking lot. So Doing push-ups without pants. There you go. Jim puts this all together because Lisa P. had said on their date, he, there was this girl last summer he would take to his mom's basement and have sex with her. So I guess Frigo knows where Connell's mom lives, so they go no, out no, there. No, no, no. I, I actually thought about this. Jesse okay. Eisenberg knows because remember, there's a, a day where uh, Ryan Reynolds gets a call from his mom. That's right. And Jesse Eisenberg goes with him because okay. he wants a joint. Yeah, and they talk about Lou Reed and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. Even Ryan Reynolds thinks that Eisenberg's weed is the shit. <laughs> to where he's like, come they're with all, me to my mom. They're all in awe of weed. It's like it's the fucking 20s and no one's had it before. <laughs> the roaring 20s. So they pull up, and did we already miss Stewart's Oscar clip in your estimation, or are we about to get to it? So she has a few moments, and I could never really land on which one, because some of them are so short. To me, when, uh, oh yeah, I guess this would be it, because at first I was thinking when Ryan Reynolds approaches her, and she's parked outside his house, mm-hmm. and she's just crying, and she's like, I can't do this like anymore, I feel like shit. I thought, oh, we're, we're getting to the Oscar clip, and then it was done. But I guess her confrontation with Jesse Eisenberg here... It could be a dual Oscar clip. They're both trying. I mean, I kind of get some of the raw sexual energy that Eisenberg possesses here. Because when he gets out of the car, he just marches up. His, like, collar's askew. And he gets right in her face and is like, what the fuck are you doing? I think it's just that the movie has conditioned us 
to see him as just this lifeless dude. And suddenly, for the first time in, you know, 90 minutes now... He's this emotional tornado. I know. He's like, he's flushed. His voice is breaking. Yeah, he just gives her the what for. And she tries to explain her side of it and everything to him. And he's not having any of it. And I will say, as far as screenwriting goes... This is a really good exchange because he really expertly gets the last line because he's like, you just think I'm a fucking idiot. And she goes, no, I'm a fucking idiot. He goes, yeah, that's right. And just walks away. (laughs) So he goes back to the park. He goes out with Lisa P again and drunkenly tells her the whole story and is like, you can't tell anybody this. I thought this was something that the movie where the movie was going somewhere a little darker and then they walked it back because as it was happening, I felt pretty confident that he was telling her knowing full well that she was going to tell everybody else. Mm -hmm. But then the rest of the movie plays out as if he really didn't know, that he didn't expect her to. To be fair, at that age, you can still have some naivety about these things. So I give him the benefit of the doubt in this situation. Yeah, but he's supposed to be... Going to an Ivy League school. Yeah, I mean, at least... You know, he, he's constantly quoting Shakespeare and referencing, like, the great works of literature where this kind of shit happens all the time. <laughs> the grapevine. Yeah, that's... I don't buy that. I, I thought it was really cool when it looked like he was going... It would have been great if he was, like, referencing Beowulf and explaining to her, like, the siren on the water as he's admitting all this shit to her. So, yeah, he tells her everything, and it's like, oh, you can't tell anybody because this will ruin his life. And, of course, Lisa P. She tells... The one black person in the, in the park, apparently. Because that's that girl that dances with her. Yeah. Who I don't, she has a name, but Kelly. I don't recall it. Kelly? Yeah. Yeah. The black character in the movie. Yep. Yeah. This is the one moment where she serves a purpose beyond dancing. And <laughs> it's to ruin Ryan Reynolds' life. <laughs> yes. Uh, word makes its way through the park about everything that's going on. Everyone's looking at Kristen Stewart with side eyes. One dumbass in the park uh, shows off his drumsticks and his air drumming ability and comments, you like musicians, right? Because as we established earlier, Connell's supposed to be like this local legend musician. Just sends Kristen Stewart into a tailspin, a breakdown. So she quits. It's a very underwhelming quitting scene, though. Maybe we've been spoiled by... That thing you do? (laughs) Jerry Maguire? Yes. What else has a good quitting scene? Pretty much anything that's not this movie. Because she just, <laughs> she punches out. She even punches out. <laughs> and she's all polite. She's just like, I quit. And scene. Uh, she There's walk- no real fallout, too. We don't see them scramble to cover shifts. When when uh, Martin Starr quit, yeah. we got a scene where they're like, hey, can you work a few doubles? Because this guy quit. Kristen Stewart, I guess she was done for the Maybe week. she never existed. <laughs> Just a figment of uh, Lex Lex Luthor's imagination. It's DC. It all ties back together again. M quits. Beside herself. Upset. James is coming into work. Sees her peeling off. Hurling obscenities. Asks what happens. Finds out that word got out. Goes and just tries to, you know, engage Lisa P in discussion about this. And she's taking Connell's side. He's taking M's side. And... It's, it's a really weird moment where the movie, for 30 seconds, tries to take some sort of feminist approach after being Guys pretty be much shitty, on the, on the dick side. Yeah, yeah, you know, they're like, why why do we have the double standard? And I was like, all right, well, this would have been nice an hour ago. Lisa P says, guys can't control themselves. That was a valid argument <laughs> maybe back then. No longer. But, of course, this causes James to just go into a a tailspin. I think I already used that expression a few minutes ago, but it's an apt description here as 
he goes to the local bar, the Stardust Saloon. We see him pounding some drinks. And then on the ride home, you know, the aforementioned um, the visible alcoholism of his father comes back into play because he's driving his dad's car and his dad is a bottle of uh, I don't know what it is. Captain Jack's rum. Whatever's in an old fashioned because that's what he's drinking most of the movie. And Eisenberg just starts pounding the bottle behind the wheel and gets in a wreck, runs into a car, rips up parts of the lawn and the street he's on. He's such a chump, though. He can't even get into a proper wreck. I mean, <laughs> the, that car is barely damaged. Uh, but he's woken up the next morning in his driveway with Frigo's mom's rhododendron in the in the, the axle of his car. And <laughs> he, like, opens the door and throws up. Then he comes over and his mom's just, like, motherfucking him, like... Why is her rhododendron in the the car here? And he just looks at her and he goes, good morning. (laughs) And goes inside. So this is the best picture clip. Okay. When they go inside and his mom's just giving him the what for and his dad's sitting there silent because the first thing that happens is his mom splurps down the the bottle of booze on the table and is like, what is this? And the dad looks at the bottle and looks at his son and then – Jesse Eisenberg looks at you know his dad and then shifts his gaze back over to his mom, and just kind of they they just move past it. It would be one of those flawed best picture clips though, because out of context, that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> That's all of them though. No, but usually they pick uh, uh, a clip that encapsulates the entire movie, you know, and you're like, oh yeah. That's right, you know. That's <laughs> it's it's like a mini 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 trailer. Remember they used. Uh, Lancaster Dodd, Philip Seymour Hoffman's clip, and cut it off right before he said pig fuck. <laughs> no, they do that all the fucking time. Daniel Day-Lewis's clip was I've Abandoned My Child. And if you haven't seen that movie, you'd have no idea what the hell he was talking about. But but the acting kind of like tells you. <laughs> but that's the thing. Here, there's no big acting. Homeboy, whoever Jesse Eisenberg's dad is, is just doing you know the, the Michael Keaton school of face acting. Yeah, but the movie's not about him, so. This is too much real talk right now. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Eisenberg jumps on the grenade for his dad. Yeah, I was gonna say I'm not denying that this is a good scene. It might be the one good scene in the movie. Eisenberg jumps on the grenade. Uh, his mom says, "You're quitting that job <clears throat> at Adventureland," and he's like, "I never want to go back there again." And she tells him, "All your money you've saved, which I think at this point is like thirteen hundred dollars, it's all gonna go towards fixing the car." And he's like, "I need all that money for New York," and she, you know, tough titties. That's the way it is. So the plans for New York fall through. And on top of that, his friend that came back from Europe is like. Uh, I'm going, I think Penn State or something that he said. Uh, Harvard. Harvard, not Columbia. No. So not New York. I'm going to go to have a different kind of rich people problems. <laughs> so again, this all falls through. And I think at this point, Eisenberg is not even really sure what he wants to do because part of the thing in New York was going to be that Kristen Stewart was there. Yada, 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 as Seinfeld gave us. Eisenberg goes to the park. Jim goes to collect his last check, I should say. Says goodbye to Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig. Sees Ryan Reynolds, Connell. One, once again, it's really weird because so his mom said, you need to quit, right? And he's like, yeah, I'm never coming back. So presumably he quit. But they're not, again, much like when Kristen Stewart quit, they're not scrambling to do it. You know they do like, explain this, though. It's the last weekend of the season, so they really don't need that many people there. So he didn't really quit. He just happened to. No one ever he, quits Adventureland. He didn't get scheduled anymore. Yes. I think you and I have both used this expression before. No one quits the theater. <laughs> he gets his last check. He sees, oh, it's bleeding into a bit of real talk. It's it's so good and how 
scummy it is. This panning shot of Ryan Reynolds with three young ladies that don't know he's full of shit. Um, and he's explaining to them, Eisenberg over here is explaining to him of uh, the time he jammed with Lou Reed. And he's, he refers to playing shine a light on love with them. Eisenberg kind of nods at him. He comes over and he starts talking to him. And uh, Connell explains that his wife found out. And uh, this, I think, is the one moment of comeuppance because Eisenberg, Jim, explains that the song is called Satellite of Love. And Connell tries to act like, yeah, I know. And then there's this moment of he realizes he's a complete and total fraud. But then. And the- semi acknowledges it to Jesse Eisenberg. But then just goes back over to these three young ladies. Well, yeah, and even before he goes back, they smile at each other. And they're like, we're bros. It's okay. <laughs> Kristen Stewart feels like shit about everything that happened. But we're cool. Yeah. Yeah, that was the one thing. It, it seems like here it still was the case of, I mean, Kristen Stewart was technically an adult. She was still a young lady and made a bad decision. But Ryan Reynolds' character's early, mid-30s here, married, and so he's the definitive bad guy in that situation. And just the scenes with him and Kristen Stewart, it seems very predatory. Well, yeah, yeah. There's never any... To call this a comeuppance is just really, really stretching to find a small victory. It's a comeuppance for Jim. Because he's... It's an see- intellectual victory. Because I was going to say, because Jim still doesn't see him as the bad guy. Jim... <laughs> it never will. No. He thinks he's cool. He knows he's full of shit, but he thinks he's just this dude. He still thinks that Kristen Stewart's the bad guy in this situation. Otherwise, if he really thought Jim was the bad guy, he'd just walk up and punch him in the face. It's been established in this movie, Jesse Eisenberg's a badass. <laughs> oh, that's true. That's true. He took down some... He, like a guy that was twice his size. Yeah. He just left hook to the liver, and that's all <laughs> it takes, man. Shades of Ricky Hatton. <laughs> Psychoanalyzing this to a ridiculous extent. So... Ryan Reynolds, what we've learned about his character here, Connell, is he didn't learn anything. He's bummed his wife left him, but there's still this crop. Of, it's literally the McConaughey and Days and Confused right. principle. He's still got this crop of girls over here. So we just leave him there to rot in his own uh, of his own devices. Um, yeah, in the hell that is the adoration of young, <laughs> <laughs> young women. Young, attractive, blonde women. Uh-huh. And... Jim has an evening. Uh, they're on a hillside somewhere. Frigo's shooting off Roman candles. He's sitting there with Joel. Just He's got a a pretty good amount of beer cans that are empty by his side. And Joel goes on this tangent that he's not realizing is you know prophetic and very profound, but it echoes to the core of Jim. He's talking about the, the Mel- gentleman who wrote Moby Dick. Melville. Yeah, Herman. and how... Herman Melville. And how he was called, was it Henry, Henry Melville yeah. in his obituary because he died poor and unknown. And this echoes with Jim and he realizes at least that guy, like, no contributor. And he, I think he says something along the lines, I hope they call me the wrong name when I die. Or he was lucky to be called Henry or something. He was like. drunk. Who, oh, yeah. You know, it doesn't, he's trying to be, you know, when you're drunk, everything sounds profound. Yeah. He said, no, let me tell you. Hey, come here. Come here. Listen. Listen. And then he said the same thing over and over. <laughs> So he just gets up and bolts. Uh, I spoke too soon. This is the moment of comeuppance <laughs> when he uppercuts Frigo and the dick. Because, like, Frigo's whole thing throughout the movie. And this is also just complete sidebar. I guess this is white people shit because I asked Julio. It's like, hey, you had a friend that, like, you know, sack tap you? Like, no. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> no, my roommate in college shut down, man. Yeah. There, there were wars that broke out over that. 
You it's, wait and hide, and then they come around the corner, pow! God, you Americans had nothing better to do with your time, really. Universally, there is nothing funnier than a man getting hit in the groin. But it's also... there's Any nothing, language. There's nothing more terrifying. In, you know, that you got to protect your... You know, I don't dish it out if I can't take it. And I can't take it. No, that's... I'm 32 now, and that's not something I would enter into again. But <laughs> when you're 20 and 21, you can bounce back pretty quick. You just kind of lay down for a little while, and then you're like, oh, you got me, and then get back up to it. Fuck that. Um... <laughs> uh, that's what happens when you watch Jackass a lot when you're younger. <laughs> That's where that comes from. But apparently not, because it was a thing in 87, according to Greg Matola. <laughs> so, anyway, the moment of comeuppance after getting sack-tapped the entire movie, lands a righteous right uppercut to the, the beanbag of Frigo. And he just says, you know... He says, suddenly, I have the money to go to New York. No, he doesn't. Well, I mean, at least to take the bus. He takes a bus. That's like $4. <laughs> By today's standards. He, he took the super bus. I could get to New York on the bus right now for like $30. So this was 33 years ago. I mean, he probably just laid down a, a tenor and they took him there. <laughs> but this speaks to how much he's mentally regressed throughout the movie. That he had this big plan. And now his plan is to just go to New York City and just figure it out when he gets there. <laughs> he's He's become... A millennial today from being a millennial in the 80s. It's exactly right. He just went there and is like, well, what's going to happen? We'll see. Didn't even pack an umbrella. But he gets to New York and this whole scene's worth it because they play Unsatisfied by the Replacements, which is like one of the greatest songs of all time. And he gets to New York City. And the entire time I'm just, the movie's called Adventureland. We're no longer in Adventureland. Why is this still going? <laughs> I was I was yearning for the good old, the good old days of... Uh, Secret Life of Walter Mitty, original version, where it's just like, and we're done. <laughs> Climax ended. Uh, what was the other one? The Fly we just recently watched. <laughs> yeah. The Fly's dead. We're done. Get out of the theater. We got to clean this place. The park is closed. Credits. <laughs> so he goes to New York, somehow knows where Kristen Stewart lives, finds her. They have a big uh, romantic exchange in the middle of the street in the pouring rain. She invites him back up to her apartment. Again, I don't know what she does to afford that kind of apartment in downtown New York City, even by 1987 standards. Uh, he contrives successfully to take his shirt off. <laughs> yeah, just reveals shredded Eisenberg. <laughs> Looks like uh, Chris Evans and Captain America. <laughs> I mean, we all know where this is going. Uh, well, yeah, because the they movie, kiss, they make out, and then they're going to have sex. And the, the movie implication ends. is he will be a virgin no more. Yes. Success. He, this is he finally entered the true adventure land. <laughs> adventure Alley. No, that would be the back walls. But uh, <laughs> Eisenberg, uh, God bless him, is he and M and... It's so anticlimactic, though. Jim, become Again, one. The only, the only way that this is a satisfying ending is if you're Greg Matola and it's the story of your life. And you're like, and this is how I got laid for the first time. Even then, he's like 23 at that point. Right, but let's let's assume that he scored with somebody who was the equivalent of, of Kristen Stewart. In, that would in, be a good payoff. Life. Right. but You wait that long to have sex, but it's fucking Kristen, Kristen Stewart. Stewart. But to, to us watching the movie, it's just really, you know, the way that they resolve their differences is just... 
they just have a talk. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even give a speech that is one of those memorable romantic uh, speeches that people will be quoting. No, the, the Stuart has the most memorable line from that, where she says, "I'm so sorry for fucking this all up." Uh, but yeah, quickly prior to the the coitus, they he explains his plan is to just go to the Y and find a shitty job. Could not be. It, like, I just want them to cut back to his parents just crying uncontrollably <laughs> at what a failure their son's become. He was going to go to Ivy League school. He was going to go to Columbia. The dad reaching for the bottle <laughs> one last time. <laughs> There's like four empty ones by his side. <laughs> Shit, man. I mean, we knew that was the way it was going to end. And it ends. And we're out. Uh, not before, though, getting a, a video. We get video credits of every significant character in the movie. And then we get the one, like, it's almost like the in-memoriam shot of Jesse Eisenberg <laughs> to take us home. I do appreciate, though, the credits after. So, like, the producer credits and the production credits are all in, like, 80s marquee font, like, from an amusement park. Like, those light-up oh, letters yeah. and stuff. Yeah. I did, it didn't really register as we were watching them. Customized credits are always a, a quick way to my heart. <laughs> yeah. And, it's, and Jesse Eisenberg as Greg Motola. <laughs> Get out. <laughs> Movie's <laughs> over. Let's move this along to real talk because this movie rules. Let's. People are trying to kill me. Get out of my doorway, motherfucker! Give me reason! Just give me a fucking reason! You don't know what I'm capable of! Come on! Please! And we are recording for Real Talk for Adventureland. That we are. Great movie. Is it? Yes. We're no longer in <laughs> Contrarian's Corner. Uh, Adventureland. Directed, as we mentioned several times, by Greg Matola, written by Greg Matola, differing from Superbad and that it was written by Greg Matola. Superbad was written by Rogan and Goldberg. Yes. Yeah. Released on April 3rd, 2009. Estimated budget of around $10 million. That's what estimated means. I don't know why I added around. Um, <laughs> box office return of around $17 million. So it did better than I thought it did. Because... Julie and I talked about while watching this and leading into it. We might have even mentioned it on air. Um, it's it's the one thing I think about whenever I think of adventure. How and, mismarketed it was. Yep, that's because that was my experience watching it. I went to see a movie from the makers of Superbad, and the trailer made it look like it was going to be just like Superbad tone wise, mm-hmm. and instead. It was not. <laughs> it was not. It made it really hard to appreciate it on its own terms. And even now, rewatching it, I mean, we'll get into it, but I still had trouble appreciating it. And this time, I was under no illusions that it was going to be a super bad kind of movie. I, But I still... I guess you bring your own baggage at different stages. And the yeah. baggage I brought to <laughs> Adventureland this time, even though it was different from the one I had when I first watched it, it, it kind of kept me a little bit at arm's length. Uh, but we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, right now, I mean, I can tell you, when I watched it the first time, I was continuously disappointed that it wasn't funnier, <laughs> so which is unfair to the movie. That's the exact opposite reaction I had. I was like, oh, I'm watching something different, but it's good. 
So I understand how that your reaction comes into play. So obviously, especially from the same time period, the things I'm going to compare to are Drive and Love and Other Drugs. That the studio that had it was like, how do I market this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It'd be funny. I wonder what the marketing material in like Europe for Adventureland was because that was always a story for Love and Other Drugs. Like in Europe and other countries, they marketed it for what it really was. And here it was like this romantic comedy. I will never forget the first time I saw that movie. It's like, what? <laughs> she has Parkinson's and she they're trying to figure out how to live with it. And that's the thing with Drive, too. So much so hilariously, some woman in Michigan tried, right. tried to sue was it it was either the movie theater or the studio only in america yeah because it wasn't fast and the furious like they marketed it to be she had never watched any trailer ever yes and see with adventureland my point i'm trying to get with this with all three of those movies i had the same reaction I, love and other drugs more than the other two was like a like a jowl shaking double take but um I love being swerved in the sense of watching something and it's not what I thought it was going to be sometimes. Well, in order for that to work, there's degrees in order for that to work. The thing I'm watching has to be good. Yes. I went into Joker thinking it was going to be good. (laughs) And I was, no, you did not. (laughs) No, I didn't. (laughs) So it's November 21st, right? It's after midnight. So it's November 20th last night. My sister and I watched Joker. If I want to, it won't be part of the plugs or anything like that. I want to save it for when we have read on for New Nightmare. I figured uh-huh. that's what we'll talk about during the credits. We'll let him plug other worlds and then we'll do the discussion. But so I, point being, it sucks. So I had to get in all my jabs that I could. Well, um, no. So honestly, like um, a good example, kind of piggybacking off drive is Only God Forgives. I went into that thinking it was going to be one thing and then they swerved me. In but a bad the movie way. fucking sucked, so it was like, I don't care about this. I'm making a really roundabout way of saying, I understand your perspective. Uh, it doesn't hamper my ability to enjoy something if what I'm watching is good. And going into Adventureland, the first time I saw it, I thought it was going to be what you're explaining. Because the trailer was just like It was silliness. just like all the, yeah, all the it, slapsticky parts of the movie. Like, the part in the trailer, if I remember correctly, like... Like any comedy trailer, you have the music playing and then it goes silent for like a big punchline. Uh-huh. It was Bill Hader sniffing the corn dogs and being yep. like, they smell bad. Oh, let's fry these up. Yeah. yeah. Then it also had the moment where uh, uh, he just goes, welcome to Adventureland. And then Kristen Wiig has some busy one-liner or like, you know, the typical Kristen Wiig line, which is like, Oh, yeah. By accepting the shirt, you are hired. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 And then it has the moment where Martin Starr gets hit in the head. By a whole corn dog. He's yeah. like, that's a whole corn dog, man. And yeah, then, the trailer is basically just all of the slapstick moments in the movie. Yeah, then the idiot playing with the the, the drumsticks. Yeah, and, and it's really easy to see why you would think this would be a super bad because Especially because well, like that quote said, and at the time I had no frame of references. It was the first time I was watching Jesse Eisenberg or anything. He did look like the the Michael Sarah stand in. You know, he's like, oh, and this is the, the awkward, skinny kid. So I think this movie might have been done for a little while before it was released because Kristen Stewart, from what I was reading, um, was doing it with Twilight. Like she it was it was kind of they were paralleling each other. But then, of course, Twilight had already come out because I remember the whole a lot of the marketing was around Kristen Stewart being in it because Twilight was the, the big shit. But 
I, I digress. The, and especially having Ryan Reynolds in it, because Ryan Reynolds waiting was just three or four years previous to this. So my point is I could see where someone and what they tried to convince people was this is going to be some kind of like, you know, gross out comedy type movie. And that doesn't even have to be gross out, but, you know, something where the the gags, the jokes coming at you fast and furious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, not gross is... out, but like a, a vulgar teen comedy. Right. And even, yeah, I mean, super bad. I don't know that I would call, I mean, super bad is obviously has a lot of vulgar humor, but that's not really. It's not a teen comedy. And... Like, I mean, teens will find it funny, but it's a comedy that works for. I, I really, honestly, I just went All expecting. I, I went expecting a comedy, and this is. I mean, it's a low key comedy, but it has a lot more of just drama. In oh yeah, it. and, and it's fine. I I think that there's. Uh, I mean, we'll get into. I I don't think I like this movie as much as you do. I know I don't like it as much as you do, and I think that that also kept me from readjusting my expectations once I figure out what it was. But I think that that shift of like. This is, I go in expecting something to be funny, and then when it's not funny, I think it took me a moment maybe to process the fact that, oh, it's not trying to be funny. It's mm -hmm. not that it's trying to be funny and failing. It's just it's not trying to be funny. You know, that might have, you know, also had something to do with my first watch where I was just... A movie I can kind of liken that to, of course, maybe not as much because you're not saying, oh, I love it, but uh, Dunkirk was definitely one that the second time I saw it, I found myself loving it so much more because the first time I saw it... Uh, the dialogue is very light in that movie. Yeah. So it took me a while to kind of adjust to what was going on because, you know, you're so used to Nolan. Mm -hmm. The first scene is going to be really dialogue heavy and set, ex like, you know, kind of the exposition for like, everything. Give me the on. gimmick. Yeah. So yeah. I can enjoy the rest of the movie. And then I was so enamored by Harry Styles that, you know. <laughs> so I, I understand exactly the uh, gamut of emotions that you're speaking to. So we've already kind of gotten, what are we, eight minutes in here and we haven't done the quotes yet. Let's... <laughs> At the emotions that Adventureland awoke in you have just... We're not, setting, we're not breaking any ground. This isn't entering anything, but this is definitely... We've had a, a heavy second half of 2019 with, like, quality movies that we've done. Like, we, obviously, by definition of our gimmick, we've done a lot of quality movies. But, like, for me specifically, we've done this, uh, Almost Famous, and the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre all in the second half of this year, which are, like three movies that I have just unadulterated love for. So let's see what dipshits, what 12% of these people don't like this movie. Oh, and The Untouchables 2 is a great movie. Yeah, we we, we had some bangers, man. <laughs> this holiday season. Um, all right, so a bunch of uh, green splotches from the Rotten Tomatoes website, starting with Mike Scott from Times Picayune, who says, if Adventureland was an amusement park ride, it would be the Ferris wheel. Both are amusing but tame, alluring but forgettable. That's that's as far as he could go with the theme park uh, analogy. Fair enough. Uh, Robbie Collin from News of the World says Adventureland would love to be this generation's Ferris Bueller, but if you said your teen movie an entire generation ago, it's not going to be this generation's anything. Okay. Overthinking it a little. Uh, Jackie K. Cooper from JackieKCooper.com says, This is like watching a home movie of someone's summer job, and that someone is bland and boring. Heavy shot at Greg Matola. <laughs> no shit. And finally, Jeff Bayer from The Scorecard Review says, There isn't nearly as much comedy as you would expect based on the previews. There's nothing wrong with that, <laughs> except the created void isn't really filled with anything, and that ending is just bad. 
Okay, so that's exactly what I was saying worked for me, but did not work for that that's, guy. That's why I picked that. Because okay, I was like, that's perfect. I have to get at least one person that, that references the trailers. And that's perfect. So yeah, and just kind of retrospect, I'm going through our website now. So in the second half of this year, we've done Little Miss Sunshine, Almost Famous. Uh, Wild Hogs. Wild Hogs. Uh, Passengers, which I liked. Never Been Kissed, which is good. Untouchable. So yeah, we did some good stuff, but then we had that giant slog of a month with the nightmare on elm street original and remake <laughs> we've just turned off several people forever with all right so it's clear as day at this point that i love this movie i'm sure if i i guarantee if you've been listening to us from the beginning there's been some episode or multiple that i've mentioned this movie and come up with it made some parallel to it and uh basically just plugged for no apparent reason other than just my enjoyment of it. As far as my usual trivia goes, I wasn't able to find anything too, you know, whoa, really? That type of thing? Um, kind Tim of, Robbins was supposed to play the Ryan Reynolds role. <laughs> uh, kind of validating what we joked about in the first portion. Uh, Kristen Wiig and Bill Hader were only on set for four days. All their scenes uh, with their characters... Paulette and Bobby had to be condensed and shot quickly because their commitments was Saturday Night Live. Um, and then Twilight director Catherine Hardwick flew out to Pittsburgh to meet with Kristen Stewart on her day off from filming eventually and to audition her for the role of Isabel Swan. Okay, so she had already started on Adventureland. Mm-hmm. So yeah, then it would have had to have been done because the first Twilight came out in 2008. So yeah, I'm curious what the, the timeline was on it. So the real Adventureland Park is located in Farmingdale, uh, Long Island. It's, it's a shithole. Yeah, it's from all my <laughs> understandings. Greg Matola had a summer job there. So, so yeah, it is all Greg the Matola's other all the other like famous. trivia on this is just kind of like really superfluous stuff. It's uh, Jesse Eisenberg and Ryan Reynolds were both in DC movies, that type of thing. So. <laughs> At least from what I could find. Um, so let's get to it here. Yes. Cameron Crowe's movie about his adolescence <laughs> was much better than Greg Matola's. <laughs> that said, this is obviously a movie that it, it walks a fine line. If it didn't have the cast that it does, like if it had a shitty cast or just like, I think Eisenberg gets a bum rap. I think he gets lumped in with Michael Sarah. And in some ways, justifiably so. I don't think it's their fault, their typecast. I think some people see them do one thing and just want them to do that over and over again. Like, But then when they do something different, like Lex Luthor, people turn on them. As I demonstrated by <laughs> shitting on him in the first half of this. Yeah. But he's different here than he is in, uh, I called it Facebook, uh, social network. <laughs> what are you, fucking 70? I know. <laughs> Two for Facebook. <laughs> um, I don't know, man. I think as I was, I think the other thing that made it a little hard to take notes while watching the movie is that I, I was trying to figure out why the movie didn't work for me. Or I mean, it works fine, but it, I'm not in love with it. And I think that I managed to narrow it down to Jesse Eisenberg. And I think he's a better actor than uh, the kid from Almost Famous. You know, who was also my problem with Almost Famous, right? I think that Jesse Eisenberg, at least to me, he exudes this quality, this smarminess that works really, really well with some of the characters that we know him from. Even Lex Luthor, you know? But let's talk about, you know, uh, Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he's just 
dead on, perfect casting there. But I didn't have that that frame of reference when I watched uh, Adventureland the first time. What I had was, oh, this is just like a, a different version of Michael Sarah. But one way or the other, I think that his character, I just don't buy him as... It's not that I don't buy him. It's just I can't connect to him as a protagonist. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the smarminess that really kind of keeps me at arm's length. I'm never rooting for him in this movie. I think that Kristen Stewart can do so much better. <laughs> in, I mean, in, in I, it's not that I don't understand his As character. someone who has made a lifetime of outkicking their coverage with women, I... I can never criticize someone for for that. But it's not I'm not talking about in the looks department. I'm talking about just personality wise. I I don't understand what she sees in him. Oh yeah, I've never than... dated a girl with personality. <laughs> well, I'm saying, you know, she I can see why he goes for her, right? Because she she's like experienced. She's you know, she knows what's going on. She's she seems sort of like street smart in a way that he isn't. No, I mean no, not no. because of the Ryan Reynolds thing. I, no. I'm trying to not just say because she's hot. It's, but. No, it's the first girl that pays attention to him after he has his heart broken. He latches onto her. Well, I mean, th- I think that's part of it. But you could say the same thing about fucking Lisa P. You know, why does he compliment with uh, in the movies? No, mind? that's what makes it interesting. Is because she's the smoking hot one, and he just really just wants the physical gratification of it. But he can't stop thinking about the other girl. It's because this other girl is like fucking. The first girl that paid attention to him, and he feels he has this like cosmic connection. If connection Kristen with her. Stewart wasn't hot, I think that 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 argument would hold more sway. But it's 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 like he has to pick between two really hot girls. Who do you want them to cast? The woman who plays Phyllis on The Office. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying it's not like I, I mean I'm not saying that it's a bad thing that Kristen Stewart's attractive, but to me it it's not just that. Oh well, this is like the first girl that you know, paid him attention. It's just like, oh, it's a really attractive girl that, you know, has all the confidence that he doesn't have. Okay. Have you ever been in that situation? Have you ever like... Outkick my coverage? No, no, no. <laughs> no. We've Wait. all been there. Yeah, exactly. Any man has been there at some point. Just it's the way the, the cookie crumbles. Um, have you ever been in a situation where you're coming off something heavy and the first girl that pays attention to you, you cling on to really hard and then she makes you feel stupid about it? Yes. But I don't see that as what's happening in this movie. Okay. Because she's too, like, she has too much shit going on for it mm-hmm. to be just that simple. I think that. I think the movie does a good job, though, of helping you, the audience, know that she made a lot of attempts to let him know that she has shit going on. She, like, there's all that, those moments of her explaining, like, her life situation and everything to him. Yeah, but that. And he's just too daft to take note of it. I think that that plays more like the movie showing them as. Oh, they're bonding. You know, she's opening up. It's not that she's warning him. It's she's opening up. She's letting him in. To me, the movie reads, and it's fascinating that we have wildly different takes on this mm-hmm. because we both watch the same thing happen on screen. <laughs> but to me, it reads as this. It, Much it, different than the Joker. <laughs> yes. This is what happens when the <laughs> filmmaker doesn't hold your hand exactly. out. Exactly. So to me, it reads like this shelter guy mm-hmm. comes into his first ever uh, blue collar job. And he meets a girl that's been doing it for a while that kind of knows what's going on, who should know better but doesn't regarding, you know, the Ryan Reynolds situation. But it's still like basically everything that he isn't. She's confident. She knows what's going on and whatever. And she likes him. And she's super hot. Mm-hmm. So I completely understand why he goes for her. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like she checks all the boxes. Even if, let's say, if it's just that 
the one girl that pays him attention after he's had like a bad relationship or whatever. You know, yeah. it's still like I okay, well I understand that too. I don't see it the other way around. So like, what does she see in him other than oh he's a new guy? It's not that he gives her attention because she gets attention anyway. It's not that he I mean, is it really just the weed? That's like the only thing that he brings to the party. No. Okay. It's, no, because if what you're gonna tell me is that she has a connection with him, that 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 Eisenberg has like some sort of charisma that she finds appealing and that's how you know the relationship grows that's what's not connecting with me because i don't see him as charismatic at all in this i don't movie. think it's that i think it's that well, one women are smarter than men in every facet and she can like, look past yeah what i can't well she sees that he actually cares about her <clears throat> and it like drives her away from herself and the situation just to like this self-destructive behavior with um ryan reynolds but and that makes her feel bad about herself and so she obviously refused the relationship and all that or whatever they're doing. So my take on it is that he had his heart broken by his college girlfriend or whatever, even though they only dated for two weeks, because he seems like a hopeless romantic or whatnot. But so the first girl to pay attention to him and cause she's just so laissez faire and she just, yeah, cool. And there's some dudes that aren't used to that. I, and you know, people I'm sure that a female that's way more friendly than others will play tricks on people's mind into thinking that they're interested in him type thing. So he kind of most of the time in this situation, he clings onto that and it's actually reciprocated to some extent, of course, for the purposes of the movie, they're actually meant to be together, but having lived through situations similar to this, that's why it resonates with me that way of, okay, this girl, I have this connection with, there's this really smoking hot girl that, wants to fool around or whatever. So I'll go do that, but I'm going to come back to this. And then in this situation, of course, for the sake of movies, this, you know, he finds out all this other stuff she's got going on and that happens in real life too. And it's basically not to play off that like things couldn't play off this way, but there's real aspects of this I can relate to and see into, but also it's a movie. So it has to end a certain way. I'm not sure Greg Matola married his Kristen Stewart, whoever that is in this movie. (laughs) Well, we don't know that J.C. Eisenberg and Kristen Stewart tied a knot. That's true. They could be well, done a year after the movie ends. That's true. Yeah, they 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 did the deed and moved on from there. Ryan Reynolds chased her. So I guess we've gotten far enough into this, but like one big thing that I think of every time I watch this movie is it came out and I just sucked its dick to anyone that would listen. <laughs> I was just like this adventure land movie. I didn't the main thing I didn't realize I didn't realize I was still in Denton when this came out. I thought this came out when I had already moved to B Cave, but this was uh, over a year before I started in B Cave. But yeah, I think I was still in College Station. I remember watching it in Booth and just like freaking out about it. It was one of those movies that I would like I would be at the bar on the weekends and be like, hey, have you seen this movie? <laughs> so much so that obviously I talked it up to like my parents and my family and whatnot. And then my dad watched it with me and like halfway through the movie he literally goes, Oh, I know why you like this. That's you. About Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> Alex, you are a lot more fun, a lot more charismatic <laughs> than Jesse Eisenberg this movie. Jesse Eisenberg doesn't have a podcast. <laughs> um but even to like the journalism degree thing, he was, it was, I just remember him saying that like, there's some scene where he's, I can't remember what it was that he was saying, but my dad just, Oh, it's you. That's why you like it. And obviously there are a lot of real life uh, situations I can liken to it. I remember my first summer working at the theater. I was 1920 and it was a lot like this. So there was a lot of, 
nostalgia to it in the sense of like it was the party at someone's house every night after work and that type of thing. But just the the longing and the not being able to truly process how you feel about someone but think you can, that, that always resonates with me pretty hard. And then also just like little side things like everyone's been Joel making out with a chick that's so much hotter than him just being like, <laughs> what the hell's going on right now? I, but see, this is funny because I'm gonna, uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to bring up Joker again. <laughs> no, because, you know, I went I went back home to Peru for my brother's wedding last week. And uh, what is the joke? Is that its working title in Peru? <laughs> Where is Batman? Um, well, no, I, so I was talking to a, a bunch of people, different people at uh, at the reception. And, you know, <laughs> they say, we know why you like Joker. It's you. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Remember that time you shot those guys in the subway? <laughs> no. Uh, I was telling them about my my Rorschach test sort of boiled down, not criticism, but, you know, kind of statement about Joker. You know, I was, uh, I think I did on Letterboxd and I mentioned it to a couple other people. To me, it's like a sort of a Rorschach test of a movie where a lot of people that love it, I feel that they're, you know, seeing those spots and making a picture out of them that has a lot to do with their inner uh, self. You know, there's a lot of baggage. We all bring baggage to the movie, like I said, you know, to every movie that we watch. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's kind of like what I've been thinking about the past couple of weeks. It, with Joker in particular, right? I, I'll read like people's experiences. Uh, Chaz, you know, mention him all the time here, but you know, his letterbox review, like it was very specific where I was just, I told him, I was like, you brought a lot to that movie. You know, I don't feel that the movie did all this stuff. You did it while you were watching it. And that's a perfectly valid experience. I mean, mm-hmm. I, one of the conversations I had at the reception in Peru was just somebody kind of reminded me that, you know, that's also part of what art does. Art brings up stuff and then you interpret it. And your interpretation is, you can be very unique to you because you're bringing, you know, your own experiences when you're experiencing art itself. So you can watch the same movie at three different points in time and have a very different take on it because you're bringing different baggage every time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know that doesn't apply to every movie. There are movies no. that you're always gonna hate. There are always movies that you're always gonna like, and sometimes for the same reasons, whatever. But instances like Joker, just because it seems like so many people I talk to, they may like it, they may hate it, but they also they may like it for very, very different reasons. Each of them, and they may hate it for very different reasons. Uh, so that got me thinking about a lot of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. About just even more so than than we're already do it here on the podcast, just how subjective everything is. And so you get the movie like Adventureland and it's like, well, of course, you know, when you watch it, you bring your baggage to it. You bring your experiences in, you know, the, the journalism thing, the whatever experiences you've had with girls, whatever experiences you've had with summer jobs. And while I've had similar experiences, I probably have them like one or two degrees separated from yours to where it doesn't really hit it that way Mm -hmm. i don't see myself at all in the jesse eisenberg character i so i don't have that in and if you're not in with the jesse eisenberg jesse eisenberg character then everything else kind of like doesn't work because and this is your first time listening to the podcast this isn't the usual discourse i don't see myself in every movie (laughs) i just want to make sure that's clear it's a prime example here but 
Well, yeah. no, but in this case, you know, yeah. because it's such a personal thing that that makes the movie work so much better for you. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure I have movies of my own. Fuck. We're doing Avengers Endgame in a few episodes, and I'm pretty sure that a lot of that, I'm pretty sure I'm going to like it a lot more than you did. Yes. That you will. And a lot of it's going to boil down to what I'm bringing to that movie when I watch it. Mm-hmm. So I can, but I can understand it. That's the thing. When you break it down, I can totally, it makes sense why it works for you a lot better. But, in, and I can sort of like in a, as, as cold and objective as I can be, you know, I can see everything else that works even when it doesn't resonate with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I can tell the mood that Greg Motol is going for. I can appreciate it. It was a really weird watching it this time without the... Um, Preconceived notions. Yeah, the trailer weighing on me because I still was having trouble figuring out what kind of movie it was. Because, again, if you don't have that in with Eisenberg, you're kind of just watching someone's memories from outside. Yeah. And uh, it's kind of cool. It was interesting. It's just very nostalgic, the entire thing. You know, the, the things that he chooses to focus on, mm-hmm. they're not necessarily plot-driven. It's just, oh, that sensation of when that girl looks at you or when you know when you get that job or when you connect with someone in this way. So I can appreciate it. It just doesn't hit me emotionally. Obviously, for myself, it was 20 years later when all these things <clears> happened. <throat> but even still... Like the soundtrack's great. <laughs> That's something I wanted to make sure I call that. I forgot it began with Bastards of Young by the Replacements, but as I mentioned in Contrarian's Corner, it wraps up with Unsatisfied by the Replacements, which is legitimately like one of my favorite songs ever. Uh, one thing I did want to mention uh, the biggest difference between this and Joker is this is a good movie and Joker's <laughs> not. Um, but somebody could break down Joker in a way where they tell you, well, this worked for me for this reason, this worked for me for this reason. And, it, you know, in the end... It when would... he killed that bald motherfucker, I felt that, man. <laughs> they could. They could. I, I would be interested to hear that because I, I, I don't, I'm not going to ever really discredit someone's opinion unless it's about Boondock Saints or something like that. But, like... <laughs> it works the other way around too the the experiences the baggage you bring to a movie can also cause it not to work for you mm-hmm. you know so it's it's the same thing it's no, yeah. the buttons are there to be pushed both ways it's it's as simple as a thing of like being in a bad mood when you see a movie yeah like it can harp, uh, hamper your opinion on it but yeah again just to relay like my personal like there, I can recall what my Lisa P date was and things like that and played out very similarly and um like that scene when they're at the party at Kristen Stewart's house and they're in the kitchen and they just have like that long look back and forth. It's just things that I can very much relate to. And that's what art does. It appeals. It it resonates with people in different ways. There's plenty of movies that it's clear as day right now. There's different interpretations of this movie just <laughs> with two people in this room. Um I'm trying to think of any other really deep shit to talk about before we just quickly break down like the the, the movie overall. I think the, of the alcoholic dad. Well, we're, we'll get to the beats of. I'm just trying to get out all my. I'm trying to flush out all my personal stuff oh, before oh. we actually artistically break down the movie. A big thing too is with Kristen Stewart, particularly in this movie. A lot of people always say that she, you know, she's as guilty as Eisenberg or Sarah in some people's minds of being the exact same thing in every movie, which I don't agree with. I think she has her beats that she goes to the biting the lip and looking down and I, I don't know, and running her hands through her hair, but this movie more so than anyone. I dated a girl in college and somewhat afterwards that not appearance wise, but mannerisms wise is very much like Kristen Stewart in this movie. And that 
kind of is able to put me in that situation. And a lot of our interactions are very similar to what happens in this movie. It so, just hits all your buttons. Yeah. That's the point. Like, this is one of those movies that I have to take myself out of it and not get offended when someone says they don't like it just because it's, <laughs> it appeals to me so much on such a personal level. So there's all that. And I love it for that. I love that it's able to, you know, some people have that with food. Like they can eat like a certain type of food and immediately be like transported back mm-hmm. to a certain point in time in their life. There's scenes in this movie that like immediately my mind just kind of, it picks my body up from that right now and then takes me back to like this memory that I have this point in time. And, there's not many movies that can do that, and that's obviously why I have such great adoration for this movie. Now, getting away from all this self-serving crap. <laughs> personal marshmallow. If I could just J-O a bit little more over here. Um, so, yeah, talking about the movie from you know just an objective artistic standpoint, you can't really – there's not really much to the look. As I mentioned, the soundtrack's great. If you're not really a fan of like alternative 80s, I, I don't really know how much it's going to appeal to you. It um, sounds like 80s, but uh, in my case, it's not like, oh, I can recognize that other than Rush. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Rush and um, I oh, want to know and, uh, how uh, you're feeling. Amadeus. <laughs> Amadeus, yes. So that was going to conclude my discussion of the soundtrack, but <laughs> what's the other one they play? The Don't Dream It's Over? Quiet crowd. I can't remember what the name of the group is that does that, but I got a memory for that song too. So that that plays into it. But yeah, Amadeus. That's like my favorite comedic part of the movie is Jesse Eisenberg comments multiple times throughout the movie how much he hates that song, and in like the biggest moment of mental despair in that, it just starts blaring over the PA. Uh, okay, Bill Hader and Kristen Wiig obviously weren't there very long. Very funny though, and what they do do. Yes, Eisenberg. Depending on if it works for you, if it works, if it doesn't, I'm not going to – same thing with Kristen Stewart. It's it's clear at this point that those type of actors either work for someone or don't. But, you know, he works in other movies for me. This just, I think – and I couldn't narrow it down to more than that. But to me, I think that the, the smarminess that I associate with Jesse Eisenberg was keeping me from – was one of the things keeping me from connecting with him. Yeah. Kristen Stewart, on the other hand, I, I bought her. The entire thing, more so than the first time I watched it. I was very much, she's probably the best in this movie. Like, uh, out of all the people involved, I think she comes out on top. All uh, the supporting cast, like Martin Starr and everyone of the like, Frigo, I mean, they're fine. But they're doing their thing. And I mentioned it as, in Contrarian's Corner as a negative. It's really not. But it's just one of those things where they're, they're just playing to their type. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. That's what's needed for this movie. Exactly. They're doing it. Well, that's why it's their type. So Bill Hader has my second favorite comedic moment of the movie when that guy chases uh, Eisenberg into his office and he comes out with a baseball bat and threatens him. So obviously I'm saving all this for the main event is Ryan Reynolds (laughs) and his performance in this movie, which more so than anyone in this. And I think this movie just kind of gets lost in his filmography as it probably does for everyone else. I mean, being honest with it, I, I remember it because I love it, but it, it's Greg not. Motola doesn't remember that he directed <laughs> Adventureland. It, it made its budget back, which surprised me because I never really did the financials on this. But this is like a departure for Ryan Reynolds that unless I've missed something big, he hasn't really gone back to since. And I'm not talking in terms of it's not like he showed up like, you know, with a huge beard and was doing crazy 
slave owner, Michael <laughs> Fossbender and 12 Years a Slave type shit. But coming into this, he was Van Wilder and he was in Just Friends. And uh, I was wrong. I guess the proposal came out after this. But my point is he was the romantic comedy guy or the really slapstick, not slapstick, but uh, gross out comedy guy. Right. Like Waiting and Van Wilder and all that. But he was also, you know, the hot guy. So in this, for him to be like the villain and seemingly like a predator, it's definitely a departure that I don't really think he gets enough credit for. Friend of the podcast, Reed, loathes Ryan Reynolds, and but he always, uh, always will put over this performance. He thinks he's really good in this, and that it's like the only time he tried type thing. And which I don't, I don't believe that. I, like I was Ryan gonna say Reynolds. that seems a little unfair to his filmography, but no. he's really good at this. Yeah, he's uh, he's unsettling. He hits the right note because it's, you know, he's not trying to be funny. He has a few funny moments and uh, you can buy that he's charismatic. But at the same time, you also get the that like thing of, oh, this guy peaked a while ago and now he's just coasting. <laughs> he has the most layered character. In the yeah, movie. yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's older. So, of course, you know, he has more more shit. Going but with on. a less actor, it, that wouldn't be as apparent. Well, yeah, because it would be so easy to just make him more of a, a caricature of a villain. If he was George Wendt, it just wouldn't work out that well. <laughs> Poor George Wendt. <laughs> How do you know? <laughs> I guess I don't. That would be something. George Wendt taking Kristen Stewart to his mom's basement. <laughs> That's a whole different set of issues for Kristen Stewart. No, how about uh, Benicio del Toro? Yeah, just trying to think of like aged hot men. Is that, <laughs> that what we're doing? <laughs> Clooney, Clooney. <laughs> <laughs> I don't see Clooney doing maintenance at a no see that these people were naming Benicio Toro doing maintenance work it's like come on it's it's believable yeah Ryan Reynolds his character is so layered that it pulls it off of all of like the things you could poke holes into of like why would that pretty boy be doing that it's like because he's a fucking loser mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's yeah. big thing high school yeah and his whole reactions to everything that happens and especially when Stuart shows up at his house he's great i i really like that final scene with uh jesse eisenberg because okay. it's, it's surprising you were really convincing in contrarian's corner about that about the fact that they're bros yeah because I, I i i like that scene a lot I, I like it too because it's just so unexpected because what you expect is jesse eisenberg to go up to him and you know just start a punch confrontation him. Yeah. punch him or at least tell him off or whatever but instead it's just a very that's more like what happens in real life <laughs> mm-hmm. you know in real life you don't punch people and you don't you know you very rarely get into this uh these cinematic arguments or mm-hmm. whatever you just kind of go up to them and sort of have like a middle ground half as yeah, yeah you know it's like the last time i'm gonna see him and whatever it just felt very honest that's one thing that you can tell of eisenberg's character like it just that that final moment hits true for the way he's been through the entire movie. If he had been more of a hothead, then I could definitely, I'll be like, why didn't he completely humiliate him in front of the girls or something? That's what I love about it though, is he does just make sure to point out that he's a fraud to him. Yeah. Yeah, It's great. And then yeah, Ryan Reynolds has like that. You got me look like, you know, the uh, he's got me pegged. Yeah. Good stuff. But did you have another point to make on that? Um, or, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I was raising my hand. <laughs> no, uh, well, I was going to say... Bernie Sanders over there. <laughs> no, um, 
I, you know, because you called uh, Ryan Reynolds the main event, but to me, the main event is uh, Kristen Stewart. I actually, okay. I think she's fantastic in in the movie. She is even oh. within the the confines of what you would say the Kristen Stewart persona back then. I think that she's as an actress, she's proven that she has much more range than anybody thought mm-hmm. originally. But even within the original uh, idea of what a Kristen Stewart performance is, this one goes places. Mm-hmm. I think that when she when she has her heart broken, it's one of the most powerful moments in the movie. It really it, it really made me care. When she's parked outside Ryan Reynolds' house and she's crying, it's like, wow, shit's happening. You know? I don't know if I verbalized it as such, but I <clears throat> my favorite line in the movie is when she tells him, I'm so sorry for fucking this all up. Oh, you said it was his, the best line in the movie or something. Oh, did that, I? Uh, yeah. Well, then I did relay that. <laughs> Yeah, I, I buy her in a way that I don't buy Eisenberg. I do buy Jesse Eisenberg that one moment too when they're having their fight outside of uh, Ryan Reynolds' mom's house. And, you know, I said in Contreras Corner, the one time that he looks alive mm-hmm. and he's just really hurt and his voice breaks and he's kind of almost crying. That was like, wow. It's, now that I can relate to. <laughs> yeah, that scene's so perfect. He's like tracked her down to her ship. Um, big argument in the middle of the street. Takes me back. (laughs) (laughs) The good old days. (laughs) The good old days. Uh, So it's funny you mentioned you think she's really good at it because that was my sister didn't watch the movie with us but made the comment. I've never seen her in anything that I thought was good. And I said, oh, I think she's fantastic in this. So I'm glad that you agree to it. And it's especially fascinating and especially good because um, for viewers myself, I feel like watching her in the past 10 years of movies and television, she's gotten a lot more comfortable and she may have been a bit, you know, kind of more reserved at the beginning. Also, but, she has the opportunity, I think, to just do more, like, different things. I was going to say, this, uh, well, this movie in particular was just kind of like stars align type thing. She still had that naivety to approach acting with, but it works for the character. And, yeah, it's all great. Uh, yeah, so Reynolds was the main event, uh, I guess, the postmortem. Um, <laughs> when I called out the, the best scene of the movie, it is, in a movie made today... It, you would be beaten over the head with the fact that the, Jesse Eisenberg's dad's an alcoholic. And I think my favorite scene, this does not, I'm the biggest lush my family's ever had. So I don't want to imply that like <laughs> either of my parents are alcoholics. So this scene does not resonate with me, but from a filmmaking standpoint to me, the best scene in the movie is um, when he does have his drunk driving accident. And then the mom puts the bottle of booze on the table and him and his dad have that moment of back and forth, and Eisenberg just takes the bullet for it. I think that's having never been in a situation like close to that. I can't really empathize. I can empathize. I can't sympathize, is what I should say. But it's such simple acting in that. But to me, it's the most powerful scene in the movie. Well, it's great because one, you get where the dad's coming from. You know, the shame. You really realize like how bad it's been mm-hmm. through the entire movie. But also, it's a really good way of showing him uh, Jesse Eisenberg growing up because he takes a bullet for his dad when he could have maybe somehow find a way to weasel his way into getting some money mm-hmm. <laughs> to to go to New York or whatever. Instead, he does a very grown-up thing. And uh, that, to me, is more powerful than anything he says to Kristen Stewart later. I do remember feeling, especially the first time I watched it, this time a little bit, that we're done, like the movie's over by the time he moves to New York. Yeah. I don't need the scene in the apartment they're in the rain. She's like, do you want to come over? Do you want to come in? I get it. They got the happy ending. You know, I don't need all the extra stuff. I know he's going to have sex with her. 
It's the only logical conclusion to this. You know he has to take his clothes off. He's soaking wet. But we had to see Kristen Stewart's New York City apartment, so. I can imagine that. I, I didn't need to. Yeah, this movie, I think, is right at 140. So they they had to have the asterisk of the, the Mattis seal of approval without <laughs> adhering to the Mattis rule of 90 minutes. But, yeah, I think that would probably be the one big scene that you could say could be clipped is them in the apartment. Because everything else, pretty much on the money, boom, boom, boom. I mean, I understand it's there because you want... You want more? Mm-hmm. If you're rooting for this couple through the entire movie, then you want to enjoy just the, the big makeup all the way to the kiss and whatever. But one, because I wasn't rooting for them. And two, because I think I always prefer in this particular scenario, I would say less is more. Mm-hmm. Just It's just so much more. It's cleaner. Yeah. You know, not the Facebook, just Facebook. <laughs> just land. Land. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I can... Feel that that's oddly enough that um, you have not seen the spectacular now. Another not movie that resonates with me heavily. You will like the ending because it does exactly what you're speaking to. Um, in terms of less is more, here nor there. Maybe one day we'll do that movie. I don't know. <laughs> that might hit too close to home. Yeah, <laughs> just that movie hits hard. <laughs> it's rough. Miles Teller's character is named Alex. Yeah. <laughs> He lives in Denton. Yeah, my dad, Kyle McClanahan, abandoned me when I was... Not Kyle McClanahan, Kyle Chandler, Chandler. excuse me. God, I'd I'd had better hair if my dad was Kyle McClanahan. Uh, Yeah, if you couldn't tell, love that movie. So, if you want to banter with me about it or talk about it, I'm on Twitter. You can find me. We got all our plugs in the beginning of this podcast. I could talk about Adventureland all day. Uh, So, obviously, my rating, A+. I mean, if I'm... Tr- Eight plus, holy shit, dude. But no, I, Why am I surprised? No, I mean, you've been... Yeah. You say, you've been sucking this movie's dick. <laughs> <laughs> it's a movie that can transport me to, like... It can... I can feel myself leaving and go somewhere else. And there's only certain things I can do that is, like, music. And some places I can be, like, transported by. But it's very rare things can do that. I mean, The Dark Knight can do that. But that's not because I relate to Batman. It's just because I think of, like... That one year you spent in Europe yeah. fighting crime. The most excited I've ever been for a movie ever was The Dark Knight. And so every time I watch it, I can remember the feelings of the first time I screened it. So, yes. Um, I'll say an A just to not go too full board. You can go full board. personal don't, feelings. Don't. No, because then people won't take my A pluses seriously because they'll just say that I, I put way too much sentimental attachment into things. As you should. It's your rating. It's not, you know. No, I got to give this an A. So when I give things like uh, Wild Hogs an A plus, people know <laughs> that it's legitimate. There's nothing I can justify not giving an A plus for because there's nothing really in the movie that I would cut. So... Yes, this gets an A plus from me. You going what two and a half stars? Three, three and a half. Three okay. and a half, buddy. All it's, right. <laughs> it's good. It might it might go up to four stars uh, if I watch it a third time. And this time I go in with the mindset of what's what's the deal with this Jesse Eisenberg guy, <laughs> 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 and see if I can I can figure it out there. There's got to be something. I, he's a good actor. I wish that there was. I could. 
I could elaborate more because it feels very superficial to just say like it's just the Jesse Eisenbergness of it that doesn't work for me, right? I I wish that there was there was something more that I could say, like a very specific choice that he's doing with his acting in this movie that makes it not work for me. But there are people, and I'm not saying this is your thing. I think this is. Uh, there are people that have a really hard time with movies that the the main character isn't completely likable. Yeah, that's definitely not my case. I mean, I'm just saying, like, I think movies like this in general, why they're not obviously more main or wide stream appeal is because that's the formula. The main character is supposed to be completely flawless in every way, shape and form. And he's kind of a fucking asshole. You know, what would be really sad if it's if it all boils down to just residual disappointment and bitterness over how bad Zombieland 2 was because I watched it <laughs> last week and it's fucking terrible oh that's and, too bad yeah I know it's a shame uh, is Abigail Breslin in it? yep okay she's barely in it they kind of write her out of the movie early on and she comes back towards the end But is Academy Award winner Emma Stone in it? yep wow I, they got everybody back wow uh, and it's just it was so bad that it made me wonder if I would even find the first one funny anymore Watching oh, it. Oh, that's too bad. I know. So maybe I was just like, fuck this guy <laughs> when I watched Avengers. I've told you, that's my thing with Zoe De Chanel. It took me like fucking six years to get over 500 days of summer. <laughs> like I would watch movies with her and not like them just because she, I disliked her character so heavily in that. But Which I could is, watch the social network right now. I was about to say, to be, be fair, fine. that's not the fault of the movie being really bad, even though that movie's not that good. It's just that she was so good in that that I. Got mad at her personally. <laughs> Shoot hot, as we say. Um, so, yeah, I can relate to that. Yes, of course you can watch the social network. It's a perfect movie. Right. But you're not supposed to be rooting for him in the way that you're supposed to be rooting for him in Adventureland. So that's supposed to be, oh, yeah, that's fair. Was that, did that come out in 2009 or 2010? I think 2010. So I it's think. eligible for movie of the decade. Oh, shit, yeah. Which I, I've seen him on the lists. Yeah. I. Off the top of my head, I, not many other ones come to mind. Guess what other ones I would say? The Master. <laughs> Duh. Yeah, that's that was. I saw The Master number two on one list that Eddie sent me. Number one was Fury Road. <laughs> I was gonna send you a screenshot just to laugh. <laughs> I'm rendered mute <laughs> by the. <laughs> the Arctic temperatures of that take. <laughs> yeah. I have so much I need to see, allegedly. But Master, Social Network, good time. Drive? Yeah. I don't know if... Mm, drive's incredible, but in, <laughs> in that category, I don't know. Anyway, it wouldn't be the Joker. <laughs> and it wouldn't be Fury Road, that's for damn sure. <laughs> Because, you know, I've seen action movies before. <laughs> we've never, I know we've made offhand comments. We've never gone in on Fury Road on here because that's. I mean, not in the way that we've gone off on other movies, but I think we've, we were on the record on at least one episode where we've said it's fine. Yeah. It's, it's a very well made action movie. It's fine, but. I get no emotional response. It's the Juno action movie of like, I saw it and I was like, oh, this is fine. And then I'll be like, the awards hype started coming. I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Let's pump the brakes here. We made an okay movie. Let's just accept it for what it is. I did see a tweet, though. I don't know if I retweeted it or if you saw it. Uh, it was like in that discussion of decade, the movie decade thing of like, um, 
as it stands, still the greatest movie villain of the past decade has been Jason Bateman and Juno. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that. I saw that. Which I can't really disagree with. <clears throat> All right. Anyway, I'm just riding off a high after talking about this movie. I don't want to give it up. So that concludes Adventureland. I'm sure it'll come back up with me talking about its greatness at some point in time. One thing we did say in the first half that I feel the need to point out now just for any new listeners or anything, completely concede that this is all white people shit. <laughs> I mean, it is true. There's only one black character. Mm-hmm. She doesn't get any lines. Nope. She does get, I guess, plot power because mm-hmm. she ruins Ryan Reynolds' life. Not to say, like, the story can't <clears throat> resonate with people anywhere, but, like, just the whole idea of it is just such uh, entitled white people bullshit of, like... I'm going to go to Europe, and then I'm going to go to this Ivy League college, and I'm going to do all this. It's Oh, dad lost his job? Okay, well, but I'm still going to Europe, right? Yeah. Just young white people shit. Still. Love it. Take it. Take it with me where I go. Uh, so up next is... Mute. It's okay. our, our sort of crossover with Netflix and Swill. Dan from Netflix and Swill is going to do a Netflix original with us. Mute from the director of Moon and Source Code, Duncan Jones. Oh, all right. Source Code rules. So, uh, you, but have, it's going to be a rotten then if it's the next. It's rotten. Oh, okay. oh, it's rotten. All right. All right. <laughs> Go in completely blind, Alex. Have you seen it yet? Yes. Okay. I saw it when it came out. How long is it? Uh, it's probably about two hours. Fuck. <laughs> you lied to me. <laughs> Uh, okay, and then that'll be episode 98, 99, of course. <laughs> the culmination of... Uh... I've knocked down one MCU movie so far, <laughs> Winter Soldier, that I told you was fine, but then I watched Joker and it raised Winter Soldier to pretty good. <laughs> All building to episode 100, our massive Watchmen celebration, 100 numeric episodes of The Contrarians. Which there's been a lot of talk of Watchmen recently, obviously due to the um, the HBO the show, HBO show yeah. and there's some sort of Zack Snyder director's cut of uh, Guardians of the Galaxy or can't what <laughs> what's the what's Batman the what's the movie Superman? he made Justice League yeah there you uh, go of uh, that people apparently want released it I I think that's one of those things that flares up like a like a bad case of. Uh, I was going to say gonorrhea, but it can't be. <laughs> Jesus. Herpes? Herpes. Okay. It flares up every now and then. Just uh, like these hashtags. But yeah, the the tie-in I was going to make is I saw that and I had to remind people via my Twitter timeline that the best thing Zack Snyder has done and will ever do in film is the opening credits of Watchmen. <laughs> so we'll get there eventually. That wraps up Adventureland. As for plugs, man, I don't really have anything. Uh, Just I've... plug Adventureland? That's what you've been doing. Yes, watch Adventureland. <laughs> If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Uh, the Replacements, because they're featured heavily in this movie. The Replacements album, Let It Be. Listen to that. That's a. Well, how about before you plug The Replacements, you plug The Festive Years? Oh, yeah. I've rolled right into it. <laughs> before you listen to Let It Be by The Replacements, let's get to uh, our traditional plugs. And that, of course, is The Festive Years, who provide our opening and closing tracks. Our opening is Last Stand, closing is Summer of 99, thefestiveyears.com. For all your festive years needs, we do appreciate them lending us the tunes. Our logo 
was designed, produced by Hans Rothgieser from uh, the podcast Nación Combi, which is a podcast in Spanish about Peruvian current affairs. You can find it in every podcatcher available. Uh, he also hosts a podcast in English called Living in Peru. That's on iVox. You can reach him on Twitter at Mildemonios, M-I-L-D-E-M-O-N-I-O-S. Uh, you can also email him at Mildemonios at hotmail.com. And you can visit his website at Mildemonios.pe, P-E for Peru. You can contact him for comics, for logos, for hot takes. You can tell him how much you like his podcasts. Yeah, speaking of his hot takes, I'm fully expecting him to send us like a, a an audio clip when he gets all worked up about us praising the the fly. I, I saw him, I, I had dinner with him while I was in Peru and I, I kind of like gave him a preview and he laughed about it. He just shook his head. Yeah. He was pretty passionate in his uh, recommendation for us not to watch it. But uh, yeah, so those are our uh, traditional plugs. We do appreciate everyone that helps us make this thing work. It uh, means a lot to us and, yeah, I, I don't really have many plugs. I've, I've been really busy with work and whatnot, so I will plug the Replacements album, Let It Be, because there was a good amount of Replacements in this. They, at the opening and closing tracks of this movie Is were this, uh, Replacements. John Lennon's The Replacement? Yes, okay. <laughs> Let It Be. I have just one brief plug. I finally, finally got around to watching the first episode of The Sinner, which is a series on Netflix starring Jessica Biel. That was, you know, a while ago when Contrary's we did. favorite. Yeah, when we did, I think London. If there were podcasting Olympics and our, we had flags, it would probably be Jessica Biel <laughs> and Ben Affleck. Yes, yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, uh, Dan from Netflix and Swill he recommended The Sinner for an example of uh, a show that actually uses Jessica Biel as an actress, not just as a really attractive human being. So I watched the first episode, really good. I, It's like eight episodes, I think, the first season. And I was very tempted to just binge the whole thing, but I've been really busy. Um, the first one is really good, though. So nice. not doesn't quite hit the maddest rule. It's 45-minute episodes, but... Dude, that that is one of those things that violated my own rule about... Uh, what's the Jason Bateman show I love? Oh, uh, Ozark? Ozark? Yeah. If it's got you, it's got you. It, yeah. Junk food TV is the best. Those 45-minute shows that are just like boom, boom, boom. Yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, our flag wouldn't be Jessica Biel and Ben Affleck. It would just be the movie poster for Take Me Home Tonight. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Adventureland has come to an end. It's closed for the night. We appreciate y'all listening. On the horizon, three hours <laughs> of the Adventure's End game. Well, mute first. No, that's next. I've, I said oh, on, on the, the horizon. horizon. Okay, yes. I gotcha. Now, uh, but Dan from Netflix and Swill is going to join us for Mute, which should be an adventure in and of itself. As I'm going to get, as Julio's requested, I'm going to go in blind too. So, a very Julio dominant conclusion to the year of 2019. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> in the meantime, we always appreciate y'all tuning into the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. The summer of 1999.
but I forgot what the original point was I was making about this. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, Frank Costanza. And I've lost my train of thought. Because <laughs> I, I was the role there. What was the original thing that we were talking about when I when I brought up uh, Kristen Stewart? Oh, She's well, too well, good okay. for him. Well, yeah, what yeah, you yeah. think. Yeah, the relationship. So to me. Uh, I don't care if Daniel Day-Lewis is in it. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis as Alfred Pennyworth. <laughs> This is like a sidebar. Have you seen how they I've keep... I've abandoned my Bruce. <laughs> they keep upscaling uh, uh, Alfred. Like, they keep casting, like, bigger and bigger names. <laughs> and then, oh, who's Alfred now? Uh, it's Jeremy Iron and... Right. Yeah. And, and then now they've cast uh, Gollum. <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, the guy the guy that does Gollum. No, I don't. Uh, you know, he's he's mostly known for, the, for doing motion capture roles. Okay. Uh, he's a big name. I, I don't know. God, you haven't gone to the movies in forever. <laughs> no. Rise of the Planet of the Apes. The new Planet of the Apes trilogy, he's the main ape. He's Caesar. Cool. There was a trilogy of new Planet of the Apes? Yes. Jesus. This is all going like at the very end of the episode. It's going to be the, the post credits. Yeah, I, I knew there was like a Planet of the Apes that came out. With James Franco? Yeah. Okay, at least you're not thinking of a Tim Burton one. No, that movie sucks. Yes. 